amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three Girl Scouts were excited about their two-week camping trip, but they had no idea about the disturbing events that had been taking place at Camp Scott for the past few months. And none of the three girls ever made it home after they had an encounter with someone sinister. It was June of 1977, and a troop of Girl Scouts from Oklahoma had traveled to Camp Scott, an overgrown campground tucked away close to the small town of Locust Grove, northeast of Tulsa. The camp had been run by Girl Scouts for almost 50 years, and it was tradition for the girls to spend two weeks camping there each year. The grounds of Camp Scott sprawled over more than 400 acres, including a creek where campers could paddle, swim, or canoe during the warmer months. The rest of the campgrounds were made up of thick native forest, with the main campsite situated in a small clearing. Because of the surrounding forest, campers reported that Camp Scott felt like an oasis away from the rest of the world. Despite the air of excitement surrounding the 1977 camping trip, 10-year-old Doris Milner had second thoughts in the days leading up to her departure. Two of her best friends had decided not to go on the trip, and Doris was worried that she would be lonely and feel homesick. To a 10-year-old, a two-week stay away from home must have felt like an eternity, especially without having any friends to sit next to on the bus. Doris's mother tried to convince her that everything would be alright, promising her daughter that she would come to pick her up if she got too homesick. Michelle Hoffman was hoping to become a camp counselor. She'd been there enough times that it felt like home, but she had never forgotten the way she had felt the first time she camped there when she was only nine years old. Now, Camp Scott had become routine to Michelle, and she was ready to help the next generation of Girl Scouts get settled in. When she arrived at the Girl Scout headquarters in Tulsa on June 12, 1977, she immediately noticed Doris Milner because it was obvious that Doris didn't share the same excitement as the rest of the girls. Michelle walked up to the younger girl and tried her best to be reassuring, offering for Doris to sit next to her on the bus so that they could ride to Camp Scott together. Doris agreed, and as the Girl Scouts lined up to board the bus, Doris followed right behind Michelle. She cheered up during the bus journey, joining in when the rest of the girls started singing camp songs. 
The campground was made up of different campsites called units, which were each named after a different Native American tribe. Every unit had space for one tent where a camp counselor slept, and up to ten tents where the young campers would spend their nights. The tents were standard for Girl Scout camping trips, offering more protection from the elements than a typical tent because they were propped up on a wooden platform and surrounded by canvas walls on all four sides. Each tent had room for four campers, who slept on small wooden cots. The inside of the tent could be accessed by unzipping and rolling up any of the four walls. All of the Girl Scouts attending the camp had been assigned a tent to sleep in. Doris would only share with two other girls, Lori Farmer and Michelle Guse. Michelle was nine years old and Lori was only eight, making her the youngest girl to be attending the camping trip. There was meant to be a fourth girl named Kristen Chenoweth staying in their tent, but she was sick and unable to attend. As night fell, Doris was sitting inside tent eight with Michelle and Lori, feeling much more comfortable than she had that morning. Their tents had been pitched just in time to shelter them from a heavy rain outside, which was beginning to turn into a thunderstorm. To allow the counselors to watch over all of the campers, the girls' tents had been arranged in a kind of semicircle, curving away from the tents where the counselors slept. Out of all of the campers' tents, tent 8 was furthest from the counselors' tent. It was also partially hidden from view by the shower blocks. When the campers were going to bed, multiple counselors checked in on the girls. One of those counselors was Michelle Hoffman, who wanted to make sure that Doris was okay. She found that all three girls had already fallen asleep, worn out by the day's events. Satisfied that Doris had made friends, Michelle returned to her own tent and went to sleep. None of the younger Girl Scouts had any idea about the strange events that had been taking place at Camp Scott for the past few months, leaving the counselors confused and uneasy. Multiple counselors had heard unusual noises in the deep woods, noises that they had never heard any kind of wild animal make before. One male counselor had returned to his tent to find that it had been violently slashed with a sharp object and several campers reported that food and personal items had gone missing from their tents. Most of the incidents could be blamed on wild animals and the paranoia that comes with being alone in the woods at night. There had been some sightings of a strange man in the area, but because the man seemed polite and wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary, none of the camp staff had reported it. Four days before the Girl Scout camp began, the camp's director, Richard Day, met a man walking about four miles from the camp. He didn't remember many of the man's characteristics, only that he had been much taller than average. The man had asked Richard where he could find a creek to fill up a bucket of water. Richard had given him directions and he went on his way. There was one incident that had shaken up Camp Scott more than any of the others, though. During a cadet training weekend, one of the older campers had returned to their tent and found that the bags had been rummaged through and all of the food was missing. Somebody had left a note in its place inside a now empty box of donuts, scrawled on multiple pages that had been torn out of a small notebook. On the papers, somebody had repeatedly written the words kill over the first three pages. The final page contained a more detailed message reading, quote, we are on a mission to kill three girls in one tent. Michelle had been one of the campers present during that incident, and she had immediately taken the notes to show to the camp's director. 
Even though it was obvious that this particular crime had been committed by a human perpetrator, the director wrote it off as being a distasteful prank after multiple campers confessed that they had written the notes. On the night of June 12, 1977, the campers at Camp Scott had a broken night's sleep, waking up to strange noises coming from the woods. At 1.30 a.m., one of the camp counselors, Carla Wilhite, was woken up by a loud groaning sound that seemed to be coming from nearby. It wasn't the first time that Carla had been left unsettled by strange noises. Just a few weeks before, she had been sleeping in Camp Scott's staff house when she had suddenly woken up to a noise coming from right outside the door. She walked to the door and opened it, but there was nothing there. Assuming that another counselor must have been walking around outside, she got back into bed. Right as she was beginning to drift back to sleep, she heard the camp dog Sally growling and barking. Sally's behavior was what scared Carla because she knew that Sally never growled at campers or other members of Camp Scott's staff. The only thing that would get such a reaction from the well-trained dog was a wild animal or a stranger prowling around the grounds. Eventually, Sally settled down and Carla fell back asleep. Just like the last time she'd heard a noise at Camp Scott, Carla got up to investigate just after 1.30 a.m. on June 13th. She left her tent and looked around the campsite, trying to find the source of the noise, but she didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Several of the young Girl Scouts also heard the noise, but they quickly fell back to sleep. Finally, Carla had no choice but to go back to bed deciding that the noises must have been made by a wild cat or a hungry bear. Only 30 minutes later, another one of the campers woke up to the sound of somebody unzipping the tent flaps and noticed that the person opening the tent was waving around a flashlight. Some of the girls saw a man wandering around outside, but when they shone their flashlights toward him, he walked away. They weren't able to see his face, and he didn't acknowledge them at all. The girls were confused but not scared, and they quickly went back to sleep. Approximately one hour later, a different camper woke up to the sound of screaming. Although it was hard to tell during the night, and the camper never got out of the tent to investigate, the screams seemed to be coming from the outskirts of the campsite, in the direction of Tent 8. A third camper heard the same screaming, as well as a young girl's distressed voice crying out, quote, Mama, Mama, Mama. None of the counselors heard the screams or the girl's voice, and because the campers were young and alone in the dark, they didn't know what to do. They thought that maybe one of the girls had a nightmare or was feeling homesick. After a while, the screaming stopped and the campers went back to sleep. The next morning, Carla woke up at about 6 a.m. and headed toward the shower block. When she glanced past the showers, she saw something out of place a sleeping bag outside of a tent with somebody sprawled on top of it. It was quickly clear to Carla that the young girl on top of the sleeping bag was no longer alive. She was covered in blood from a severe beating, leaving her almost unrecognizable. Carla had just discovered the body of Doris Milner, the same 10-year-old girl who had been reluctant to come on the camping trip in the first place. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 
Confused, half asleep, and suddenly terrified, Carla ran for help. She found the camp's nurse and one of the directors of the camp, telling them that they needed to come with her immediately. Carla later recalled the reality of the situation only truly sunk in when she returned to the body. The nurse initially believed that Carla was overreacting and one of the girls had simply been injured, but when she arrived at Doris's body, she realized that Carla's panic was justified. Carla and the other counselors began searching the tents and quickly discovered that one was completely empty and the inside was smeared with blood. One of the girls who had slept in Tent 8 was now deceased, dumped in her sleeping bag in the woods, and the other two girls in their sleeping bags were nowhere to be seen. The search had only been underway for a couple of minutes when the counselors discovered the bodies of the remaining two campers lying on the trail that ran between Tent 8 and the showers. The girls had been stuffed inside the sleeping bags out of sight after being bludgeoned to death. The annual camping trip was quickly brought to a close. The camp director immediately began to send the young campers back onto the bus, simultaneously attempting to minimize groups of children from contaminating the crime scene. After being evacuated that day, the camp was closed permanently. This was the last camping trip that would be held at Camp Scott. During the autopsies, the medical examiner found that all three of the young victims had been sexually assaulted before their deaths. Even though all three girls had been severely beaten during the assault, they didn't have the same cause of death. Both 8-year-old Lori and 9-year-old Michelle had died from blunt force trauma, but 10-year-old Doris had been asphyxiated by strangulation. Examination of the forensic evidence found inside the tent showed that the entire attack had taken place inside Tent 8, after the unknown assailant unzipped the tent flaps and climbed inside. The brutal sexual assault and bludgeoning of all three girls had left Tent 8 soaked in blood. It was only afterwards that the girls in their sleeping bags were moved outside, then dumped in a location where Carla later discovered their bodies. The blood-soaked tent provided a key piece of physical evidence. There had been so much blood that the attacker had been unable to avoid touching the wet surfaces and leaving prints behind. Even though the smudge patterns in the blood suggested the killer tried to clean up after themselves, it would have been almost impossible to completely wipe away the evidence in the pitch black of Camp Scott, even with the light from a flashlight. The day after the murders, the wooden floor of the tent was carefully removed from Camp Scott and airlifted to a crime lab where it could be analyzed. From the bloodstains, investigators discovered a nearly perfect bloody footprint from somebody who wore a size 9.5 men's shoe. Investigators wanted to keep that discovery a secret, but against their wishes, the press were informed, and it quickly became common knowledge that a shoe print had been found. Despite the killer clearly trying to remove some of the physical evidence, he had left plenty behind at the scene of the crime. On top of the girls' bodies, he had left behind a red flashlight that he had used to find his way around the campsite. There was even a fingerprint left on the flashlight's lens, but forensic analysis found that it had been smudged too much to be used. The flashlight also showed that it had not been a spontaneous crime. The killer had been well prepared, even padding the batteries with pieces of newspaper so that they wouldn't rattle while he walked. As the radius of the search expanded to cover more of Camp Scott's 400 acres, more physical evidence was uncovered. Investigators found a length of rope and some duct tape which had likely been used to restrain the girls during the attack. They also found an abandoned pair of women's glasses. 
When the search led investigators to a small cave close to the campsite, it was clear that somebody had been living there for a period of time, hiding away from the camp officials. The cave contained several newspapers, which matched the text from the scrunched-up pieces of paper that had been wrapped around the flashlight's batteries. Whoever killed the three girls had been living in the cave while he prepared to carry out the crime, but it seemed as if the killer knew that the police would eventually find his lair. He had even written a message for them on the wall of the cave that read, quote, The killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. Followed by the numbers 77-6-17, a date format that was commonly used in prisons. On June 15th, investigators made an announcement. They were flying in two highly trained tracking dogs nicknamed the Wonder Dogs from Pennsylvania to assist in the hunt for the killer. Shortly after their arrival, the Wonder Dogs led their handlers to a pond on a nearby property, but after the pond was drained, no further evidence was found. That same day, a rumor began circulating in the area that a member of the local Cherokee tribe had placed a curse on the dogs. The rumor would have been quickly discarded if one of the two dogs, a Rottweiler by the name of Butts, hadn't died of heat exhaustion one day later. The remaining wonder dog named Haras continued to assist in the investigation, but failed to uncover any more clues despite his owner making an announcement on June 19th telling the public that there would be a break in the case very soon. While Horace was being transported back home to Pennsylvania, the usually well-trained dog escaped and ran directly onto a busy road. He was hit by a car and died at the scene, fueling the rumors that some sort of curse had been placed on the dogs. Within four days, two dogs valued at more than $10,000 each had died suddenly, and the investigation was back where it started. With no eyewitnesses who could help them to identify the killer, police were left sifting through a list of men in the area who had criminal records including sexual violence. One name stood out to them, Jean Leroy Hart, a 33-year-old prison escapee who had been charged with kidnapping and raping two pregnant women. Despite the severity of his crimes, he had quickly been paroled, only to end up back behind bars when he was caught stealing. In 1973, Gene had managed to escape from prison and, four years later, he became the main suspect in this case. The key piece of evidence potentially linking Gene to the murders were two photographs located in the cave the killer had lived in. The photographs were mistakenly announced to have been found near the bodies, when in reality, the cave was around 2 miles or 3.2 kilometers away from the crime scene. Forensic analysis of the photographs found that they had both been developed by the same person during the period of time where Gene had worked at the Granite Reformatory's photo lab. However, the announcement that Gene was a suspect in the case based on only circumstantial evidence was met with public backlash. Gene was a member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, the largest Cherokee tribe in the United States of America. Many people, especially Native Americans, believed that racial profiling and prejudice had led to the investigation focusing so strongly on Gene. But local law enforcement stuck to their guns and a large-scale manhunt was launched. The initial manhunt on June 24th involved hundreds of local volunteers surrounding a four-mile area located near the camp. Some of the volunteers arrived drunk or under the influence of marijuana, resulting in police needing to place them under arrest before returning to the manhunt. After two days, the effort was disbanded. For months, there was no success. 
It seemed as if Jean had simply disappeared into thin air, but investigators didn't believe that Jean had left the area. In fact, they strongly suspected that he was still hiding out around Locust Grove, and that his family and friends may have been helping to hide him. The hunt for Jean began to rely on tips from members of the public. On April 6, 1978, almost a year after the girls were murdered, a useful tip came into the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. It wasn't the first time somebody had called in a tip that seemed promising, and investigators didn't want to get their hopes up when they arrived at the given address, which was a broken-down old shack located more than 40 miles or 65 kilometers from Camp Scott in the remote Cookson Hills. At 4.15 in the afternoon, a total of eight agents stormed the property. It turned out to be the home of a local Cherokee medicine man, but sitting inside was the suspect they'd been searching for. Jean was immediately placed under arrest for suspected involvement in the murders. The sheriff even publicly stated that he was 1,000% certain that Jean was the killer. One thing that all eight of the arresting officers noticed was that, when they arrested Jean, he had been wearing a distinctive pair of women's eyeglasses. That was a key detail from the two sexual assaults he had previously committed. During both crimes, the victims remembered that Jean had removed their eyeglasses and tried them on. That made one of the pieces of evidence found at Camp Scott, the discarded pair of eyeglasses, seem even more significant. The media attention focused on the case had only just begun to die down in the years after the murders, but as the date of Jean's trial came closer, Oklahoma's interest in the case revived. There were two sides to the public interest in Jean's trial. Those who were convinced of Jean's guilt and wanted to see justice be served, and those who were convinced that he was the innocent victim of racial profiling by police. Both groups of people were invested in the outcome of the trial, but for completely different reasons. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. In 1979, 21 months after the last camping trip took place at Camp Scott, the trial began. Gene's supporters gathered outside, wearing t-shirts that said, Stop the Mays County Railroad, a reference to how they believed Gene was being used as a scapegoat by investigators. Reporters and journalists descended on the courthouse, where the trial was being held on the third floor. Jean was represented by a local attorney, Garvin A. Isaacs, who had come highly recommended as an ex-public defender. Jean's supporters had raised the money to hire him. The first time that Garvin met his client, Jean immediately stated, quote, I want you to know one thing. I didn't kill those Girl Scouts. For some reason, those words stuck with Garvin as being authentic. Later, he remembered that moment, stating, quote, Those were the first words out of his mouth. I believed him when he said that. The prosecution's case against Gene depended on a large amount of physical evidence. The collection of items found at the cave where the killer had stayed, photographs that had been linked to Gene's previous job at a photo lab in prison, the men's shoe print left in the tent, and the samples of hair and semen that had been found at the crime scene. Today, this evidence might have told a different story, 
With modern DNA evidence, the killer could have been directly implicated, conclusively proving that Jean was or wasn't at the scene of the crime. But in 1979, forensic science was still seven years away from the introduction of basic DNA evidence, and that meant that all of the prosecution's evidence was only circumstantial. The only thing that could have proved that Jean was the killer were eyewitness sightings or fingerprints, and the state had neither of these things. The flimsy evidence provided by the prosecution practically created defense attorney Garvin Isaac's argument for him. He told the jury that the men's shoe print found at the crime scene wasn't the same size as Jean's, and that the hair samples couldn't provide a conclusive match to his client. The evidence that law enforcement had found in the cave provided the strongest link to Jean, but again, it was only circumstantial. Jean's criminal record and the fact that he lived nearby seemed to be the only reason he was viewed as a suspect, and those suspicions were far from being proof that he had carried out such a violent crime. The defense also suggested that another local criminal had been the perpetrator, a convicted rapist by the name of William Stevens. One of the Girl Scouts who had seen an unknown man walking around the campsite testified, examining the photo of William, saying, quote, that looks like the man. We heard a noise and one of the girls lifted a tent flap and shined her flashlight in his face. He turned and glanced and walked away, but I didn't really see his face. One of William Stevens' friends, Joyce Payne, also testified, telling the jury that he had borrowed her flashlight for a fishing trip shortly before the murders and she had never received it back. When Joyce was shown a picture of the red flashlight found near the girl's body, she said, quote, that flashlight is my flashlight. It was given to me by my son. Joyce's son, Larry Payne, told the jury that he had seen William Stevens shortly after the murders and that William had been covered in claw marks along his forearms and neck. His boots had also been covered in what looked like blood and he had requested to go to Larry's bathroom to clean them off. William's employer confirmed that he had been working in Florida around the time of the murders and Larry eventually recanted his statement. William died in 1984, so the question of his involvement is yet another mystery. Like several other violent offenders in the nearby area, William Stevens had been a suspect in the investigation. But after thorough questioning, investigators felt confident that he was not the killer, and they eliminated him as a suspect. The defense alleged that that decision had only been made because local law enforcement wanted to pin the crime on Gene. On March 20, 1979, Gene Leroy Hart was officially acquitted after the jury unanimously decided that he was not guilty of the murders. The verdict came as a shock to many locals who had been following the case. In their eyes, it seemed clear that Gene was the killer. For Gene's supporters, still protesting outside the courthouse, it felt as if their efforts had paid off. The families of the three Girl Scouts were devastated, and in an attempt to reassure them, prosecutors reminded the families that Jean was going back to prison regardless of the not-guilty verdict. Jean had plenty of crimes that he had already been convicted of, four burglary charges as well as the kidnap and rape charges from his first arrest, and additional charges for his prison escape. He was returned to Oklahoma State Penitentiary, where he had only served three years of his 308-year sentence before his escape. Shortly after his return to the penitentiary, Gene was jogging in the prison's exercise yard when he collapsed. At 35 years old, he had suffered a serious heart attack and died. After his acquittal, the investigation seemed to slow and then stop. From very early on in the case, local law enforcement had been convinced they had found their killer. 
The public began to wonder if the sheriffs had been so focused on Gene that they'd made it easy for the real murderer to slip through their grasp and escape justice. The next break in the case came a decade after the trial, when the case was revisited using new technologies that allowed forensic testing of DNA samples. DNA testing of the semen found in the bodies of all three victims was carried out in 1989, and three out of the five tested samples showed a match to the DNA of Gene Leroy Hart. However, those results couldn't be used to conclusively show that he was the killer, because the remaining two samples showed an inconclusive result. Forensic experts believe that, statistically, one in around 7,700 DNA samples from Native Americans would have the same result as Gene. That meant that, while it was much more likely that Gene was the killer, it wasn't the kind of proof that would close the case. So the search for the killer of the Oklahoma Girl Scouts continued, and in 2008, more DNA testing was carried out. That time, forensic analysts took samples from stains that had been left on a pillowcase in Tent 8. But 30 years had passed since the crime, and the DNA samples had degraded too much to be used for creating a DNA profile. Another 10 years passed, and DNA technology continued to become more and more advanced. The rest of the world had moved on from the fascination with the three Girl Scouts murdered in Oklahoma, but Mays County never did. Mays County's new sheriff, Mike Reed, had grown up in the area, and when the Girl Scouts were murdered, he'd been around the same age as the victims. Like any other local, he was familiar with the case. It had caused paranoia in families across the state. If their children weren't safe at a scout camp, where would they be? Now, as an adult, Mike had become the sheriff, and he was asked to take another look at the case that had scared and fascinated him as a child. One year later, he brought the case to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, a private nonprofit that is the largest child protective organization in the United States. At the NCMEC, a cold case board examined the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. The board was made up of 23 highly experienced professionals, who were a mix of FBI profilers, behavioral analysts, and seasoned homicide investigators. They were the best of the best, working together to try to crack some of the country's most complicated unsolved homicides. The cold case board poured over every detail of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. The physical and circumstantial evidence, the timeline, the autopsy reports, the small amount of DNA evidence, and everything that law enforcement had ever discovered about Gene Leroy Hart. One month into the assessment, the 23 members of the board came to a unanimous agreement. Every single one of them believed, without a doubt, that Gene Leroy Hart was the killer. With that verdict, the NCMEC suggested that the next step would be further analysis of the DNA evidence. But it came with a hefty price tag, costing more than $30,000. The victim's family simply didn't have that kind of money lying around, and neither did the Mays County Sheriff's Office. But they weren't the only people invested in the case. Public fundraising efforts began in 2017, raising the $30,000 needed to carry out another round of DNA tests. The results of these tests have never been made available to the public, but in 2022, investigators revealed that, since 2019, they had access to DNA evidence that strongly suggested Gene Leroy Hart had been involved in the murders. In fact, the evidence was so strong that it was able to rule out every other person of interest or suspect in the case, leaving Gene as the one person who could have possibly been the killer.
However, the sheriff's department would not make these DNA findings public knowledge unless the families of the three victims requested it. Mays County Sheriff Mike Reed gave a statement saying, quote, Unless something new comes up, something brought to light that we're not aware of, I am convinced where I'm sitting of Hart's guilt and involvement in this case. In 2022, Hulu released a docu-series about the crime called Keeper of the Ashes, the Oklahoma Girl Scout Murders. The host of the series was Kristen Chenoweth, the girl who had meant to be the fourth camper sleeping in Tent 8 that night. Kristen had grown up to have a successful career as an actress and singer, but she had never managed to escape from the what-ifs that haunted her. There was no reason for her to believe that she would have become Tent 8's only survivor. If she hadn't been ill and unable to attend the camp, she believed she would have met the same fate as Lori, Michelle, and Doris. At one point during the docu-series, Kristen reflects on the murders, saying, quote, This happened. There's no closure. There's no pretty red bow at the end. And for the people who are still mourning the three girls, that statement holds true. For the victims' families, the unreleased results of the DNA provided some of the closure they needed, reassuring them that one man who was likely involved in killing those little girls was gone for good. But officially, Jean Leroy Hart has never been named as the killer. That's also coupled with some unanswered questions that may lead to a second perpetrator. The shoe print, in blood, that was two sizes smaller than Jean's, and the testimony about who had possession of the red flashlight. At his trial, there was also testimony from a blood spatter expert who claimed more than one weapon had been used, likely by someone both right-handed and left-handed. Is it possible that Jean was able to subdue all three girls without one of them managing to get away? Sure, but it would have been much easier with two people. Jean may be in the ground, but it still is possible that a second killer has never been identified in the case. It's something we'll probably never know, and the case of the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders technically remains unsolved. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. 
Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.